Well, thank the Lord. It's so good to see all of you again this week. I'll invite you to turn with me once again to the end of John chapter 11. In just a moment, we'll start reading at verse 54. We have quite a bit to see from God's Word together this morning. Uh, last week, we had to see something that's always hard to see, sad to see. We saw the sin of unbelief put on full display. Almost in an ultimate sense, when you have a group of rebellious men choosing to reject in unbelief the very Son of God Himself incarnate. And we saw that sin of unbelief for what it really was, in its rebelliousness of heart, in its fundamental mistrust of the goodness of God. We noticed last week that it's very kind of our Lord to show us things like that, but it is a very negative picture to have had to take in. Thankfully, that negative picture only needed to last for one week, because as we come this morning into chapter 12, we see a very different picture from the one we saw then. John 12 is maybe best known for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That will come in verse 12, and that will be a focus for us next week. But before we get there, what John does for us is he gives us here some positive pictures, positive results of the work of Christ that has been put on display. And this is what we're seeing this morning. When a display of Jesus Christ, by the sheer kindness and mercy of God, does not hit stony hard ground, but rather meets with prepared soil. When it hits home and bears fruit, the result of that miraculous work are some of the things that we see this morning. So we'll start by reading. Uh, we'll be given some setting, very helpful setting, especially in verses 55 to 57 of chapter 11. We'll be reading down through verse 8 of chapter 12. Uh, and certainly the central picture that you'll hear here is going to be the one that we take in from Mary, what Mary does with the Lord Jesus. But that's not the only place that we're going to see here Christ's impact upon the people around him. So I'll read John 11, verse 54, down to chapter 12, verse 8. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John continues in this way. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. <clears throat> our outline for our time this morning will start in the first verse of chapter 12. But let's just quickly notice some of the details that John gives us prior to that that sets the scene up for us here very helpfully. 
Now we find in verse 55 of chapter 11 that the Passover is drawing near. And we also find there that because of certain life situations for various Jews, there was the need for many to travel beforehand to come to Jerusalem in order to go through certain purification rites. That takes some time in and of itself. There are hundreds of thousands coming to these Passover celebrations, and so that alone is going to require some time to go through. So there's a large group that are already amassing in Jerusalem here. And verse 56 tells us what they were talking about. The hot topic going on amongst the Jews who have now come into Jerusalem for this celebration is Jesus. And we hear the expectation that they are coming to or that they're voicing there in verse 56. John gives it to us as a question. And the way that he words it makes it clear that this question is expecting a no answer. The question that they're asking is something like, what do you think? There is no way. Surely he's not coming to this feast. Right? There is no way he's, that Jesus is coming here. Don't you think? This is the discussion that they're having. And John tells us why everyone is so skeptical as to Jesus' arrival. Verse 57 tells us it's because by this point now, Jesus is publicly a wanted man. They have given word publicly that if anyone knows where he is, they are to inform the authorities so that he can be arrested. It's very important for us this morning, coming into chapter 12, that we recognize that. That the events that we're hearing about here in chapter 12 are happening in that context. Each of the things that we're going to see this morning are happening amid that, and they all have something in common as a result. Each of these things we're going to hear are instances of someone intentionally choosing to honor Christ rightly in a particular way. And in fact, what it winds up showing is the honor of Christ deliberately over something else. These are choices that men and women are making as a result of what they have seen in the person of Jesus Christ. There will be three of these this morning. The first one we can take out of the first two verses here. What do we see? We find on display in this, these first couple of verses that where Christ's work has reached human hearts, Christ is honored above earthly authorities. Look again at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now the first thing that we have to do is Avoid an assumption that can be very easy to make. It's easy to read verse 2, where it says, So they gave a dinner for him there. And to just implicitly assume and read into that, So Lazarus' family gave a dinner for him there. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't direct us to be thinking about Lazarus' family. It's deliberately indeterminate. It doesn't tell us who the they is explicitly. And for that reason, for example, the NIV translates that in a passive way. It says, a dinner was given for him. And the reason we might put it that way is that many think that this is not talking about Lazarus's family, but is instead talking about something that was very common in those days in these small villages. And that is that when an honored guest comes to one of these small towns, the whole town comes together in order to put on a meal to honor this man. And I'm inclined to believe that that's the picture that's going on here as, Lazarus, as Jesus returns to Bethany. I think that for a couple of reasons. One is that John makes a point here of the fact that Lazarus was one of the ones reclining at table with him. That would make sense to mention if this is a whole town event that is being put on and there's a select group of, of uh, honored guests who are able to actually recline at table with Jesus, with the guest of honor. But if this is at Lazarus' house, and this is a dinner that Lazarus' family is putting on, it would be a total given that Lazarus is one of those reclining at table there with him. Secondly, and maybe more significant, is that we find a parallel account of this event in Mark 14. And we're told in Mark 14 that this event in Bethany took place in the house of Simon the leper. 
Now, some try to suggest, and it is possible, that maybe what's going on is that Simon the leper is the father of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and he's still alive, so this is able to be considered the house of Simon the leper. I think it's far more likely that Simon the leper is another important townsman in Bethany, and his was the house chosen to host this town meal. Now, here's why that would matter. If this is the town putting on this meal for Jesus, then what we're, what we're hearing described to us almost in passing is that this entire town of Bethany has been so impacted by what Jesus taught and by what Jesus displayed in raising Lazarus from the dead that they are collectively disregarding the command of the Sanhedrin to go and report this man if they find where he is. This would be a significant thing for the town collectively to feel comfortable doing. They're only a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. It's helpful, I think, to to consider what heart change this would be if that's what's going on. It isn't as if Christ's impact on these people's hearts is that he has made them naturally rebellious people, uh, resentful of human authority. None of that is what we're seeing here. But it is that his impact on them has made a clear, settled recognition come upon the town. And that is that no other authority is worthy to compete with Jesus' authority. There is no one else whom they care to honor more than Jesus Christ. Because of what they have seen of God in the face of his Son. The second display that we see here this morning of Jesus' work hitting home in people's lives is that we do see, as in the first point, Christ being honored above earthly authorities. But secondly, we also find here Christ prioritized above worldly considerations. This is what we'll see in the majority of what's coming after this regarding Mary. Look again at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There are several things to notice about what she's done here because this act is really an act that does two things at once. It's an act that lifts him up in honor and an act that brings her low at the very same time. Can you tell that? It brings her low in the fact, first of all, that she's interacting with his feet. If feet gross you out a little bit, you can rest assured feet grossed them out too. And there were even laws in place as to the limits of what servants had to do regarding their master's feet. They they were grossed out by feet as well. So for her to come to the Lord and kneel at his feet and interact as she is with his feet is a lowering of herself. But secondly, and maybe even just as obvious to those standing around there, is the fact that she has to let down her hair in order to do what she's doing, to wipe his feet with her hair. A Jewish woman simply did not do this. She never unbound her hair in public. This was a big deal. There's a passage, just to give you a a story sort of example, we have a passage in some rabbinic writings where that that rabbi tells the story of a woman who occupied a special place of honor within her society because she had seven sons and all of them had served in some capacity in high priestly duties. So listen to this, her name was Kamitha. Kamitha had seven sons who all performed the office of high priest. They ask of her how she came to this honor. You understand the question? How is it that the Lord has so honored you so as for you to have seven sons who occupied such a high place? She answered, the rafters of my house never saw the hairs of my head. This was her explanation. She had so guarded her own honor in the way she kept her hair up and covered that she says, the rafters of my house never saw the hairs of my head. And surely that's why I've been so honored. You can hear in that mentality just what this is for Mary to come here and undo her hair and expose it and wipe Jesus' feet. This move is 
self-abasing in terms of its effect. But as I read the account, I have to think it might be better actually to say that the move was self-forgetting rather than self-abasing. It doesn't seem like she is working to dishonor herself here. It seems that so overwhelmed is she in her desire to show her love and adoration for the Lord that she simply isn't thinking of herself at all. Any consideration in her as to public image, for example, is gone. Because this person is in her mind in such a place of priority. And in this moment, she has the opportunity to show something of what she feels for this man. He is in her mind in such a place then above worldly considerations. She is brought low in this act or else forgotten altogether. But let's think about this for a moment before we move on. Why is she doing this? As we've said, it isn't because she thinks lowly of herself for its own sake. This is the kind of thing that one would do when one is overwhelmed with the awareness of the greatness of another. So that I am very eager to do something even drastic in my attempt to show this. To do what she has just done, I mean, some can try, as they will, to criticize her for going too far, maybe criticize her for the wisdom of what she's doing. This is a foolish thing to do. No one, though, can dispute that this action has indeed just honored this man, has just brought him honor. Both Matthew and Mark, in their recounting of this, record Jesus saying of her, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Kind of like we're doing right now. There's a well-known and very helpful biblical commentator named Herman Ritterboss. He writes this. I just found this beautiful, his accounting of what happens here. He said, Never did the Son of God dwell more gloriously among humans than at this last banquet. And nowhere else was the response of their faith and love to his presence more vivid and eloquent. Mary's action expresses what she did not have the words to voice, but it filled the whole house with the fragrance of her love, and as such would continue to spread through the preaching of the gospel in the whole world. She has indeed honored him greatly in what she's done. But let's remember the point that we're noticing in particular this morning. We're not just saying that she's honored him greatly. We're saying that she has prioritized him above worldly considerations. And in particular, that's what's at issue in this passage, because that is what Judas gets so upset about as a result of this. John describes the uh, ointment that is poured out here as expensive ointment. What kind of figures does that put into your mind as you think of expensive perfume or expensive ointment. I can venture to guarantee to you that the true expense on display here goes way beyond what we think of when we hear the words expensive ointment. Judas, who kept charge of the money, tells us that this quantity of this pure substance, the word is a litra, it's more like a three-fourths of a pound, it's even less than a pound of this. Judas tells us that this amount of this could have been sold for 300 denarii, is what he says. And since Matthew 20 tells us that one of those, one denarius, is an acceptable payment for a day's work of the average laborer, what we're talking about here is the ballpark of a year's wages for the average laborer. This is what's in this little glass vial. So that's one thing. Mary judges that this opportunity to honor Jesus justifies the expenditure of a year's salary in a single act of devotion. And that is what infuriates Judas. This stuff was unbelievably valuable. Think of the uses that it could have been put to. Good uses. 
being sold and that extravagant amount of money used to serve the poor, which is a good endeavor. I I think John's little aside in verse 6, part of what that does is it does emphasize that that end of serving the poor is a good one. You see back at verse 6, John qualifies, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. What he's pointing out is that while that is a noble consideration, that's not actually what was motivating Judas. Greed is what was motivating Judas. And Jesus replies to his objection, and we'll hear what he says first in verse 7 in a few minutes. But his response to the specific objection of worth or value, I mean, Judas' criticism of Mary is that she has wasted something. Is that a fair way to characterize it? You've wasted this. Jesus' response to that comes in verse 8. Let's look there first. Verse 8 says this, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now this is not on point for us this morning, but I just have to, to observe. If Jesus is simply a mere man, like other men, is this not the most arrogant statement that you have ever heard in your life? The poor you always have with you. You do not always have me. I really wonder why this is not a more common passage for us to reference when we're talking to someone who wants to say that Jesus was not divine, he was not God, but he was a good man. He was a good teacher. A mere man who is a good man would never say such a thing as this. The only way this could be a good thing to say is if we're talking about someone about whom John 5.23 is in fact true. If we're talking about someone who, by right, ought to receive the same honor that is due to the Heavenly Father himself. That is the only way that this statement is not grossly inappropriate. However, that's off topic for us this morning. The question is this. In this act of Mary's, where such a resource was used up on a single opportunity to honor Jesus, Here's a starter question. Is Jesus pleased with what Mary has done? I hope you agree. He clearly is pleased with what she's done. It's even more obvious in the companion accounts of Matthew 26 and Mark 14 that we looked at before, where they both record Jesus saying of her, she has done a beautiful thing to me. He finds the way that she used this resource to be a noble thing. And I want to suggest to you that this is one place this morning where we have a real opportunity to sharpen our thinking as Christians. Because let's pretend for a moment that Judas was not planning to steal from the proceeds of this. Or we could even think of the other disciples. Because Matthew and Mark also tell us Judas was not the only one who was upset. John points them out. But other disciples were upset about this too. And I doubt they were planning to steal from the results. So let's think about them. What is incorrect about their objection here? Why is this not wasteful for her to do? It's not a stupid question. This thing is incredibly valuable. The proceeds are potentially of tremendous practical use. And all for one opportunity, one moment, a particular way of honoring Jesus. Is this not wasteful? I think that what this does is it, and and why it can be so helpful to us, is it starts to beg certain questions that sometimes go unasked to our own detriment. Maybe the main one being this. Questions pertaining to ultimate purpose. What should my ultimate purpose be in this life? Ultimately speaking, what is the purpose of anything that has been made, not to mention my own purpose in this life. And there are many ways that that question gets answered by people, aren't there? Some who think the world's thoughts after it, who are in love with this world and are especially honest, might say something like, my ultimate purpose is to gain the most 
pleasure and enjoyment that I can out of this world. That's my ultimate purpose, to have the most fun before I die, to enjoy life uh, as much as I can. Some would answer that way. And some unbelievers could even look at that and identify just how far short that falls in terms of ultimate purpose, because it's utterly self-centered, isn't it? However, there's other answers that even the unbelieving world would give. You'll find plenty of good people in the world, by the world's standards, who would say something like this. My ultimate purpose in life should be to do the most good for the most people that I can. There it is. There's my ultimate purpose. And one question that this event and Jesus' reaction brings to us is, how do we feel about that answer as Christians? Do we like that answer? My ultimate purpose in life is to do the most good for the most people that I can. I want us to think about that for a minute, and I want to suggest to you this morning that that answer is not only wrong, but that it is idolatrous. Now, how could that be? We're asking questions of ultimate purpose in life, aren't we? Several hundred years ago, a certain catechism famously asked that question in terms of man's chief end. Have you heard that? Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? And it answered it this way, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now for us, what matters is not what a, what a uh, catechism says, it's what the scriptures say. So where did they get that answer? And in fact, they got that answer from a repeated theme in God's word, didn't they? I want to give you some examples of this theme but let me tell you beforehand what we're going to do here. I'm going to give you several, several passages together in one group. Then I'm going to give you another set of passages in a second group. Okay? So, and we're going to compare them. So this is where we're going. But here's the first set of, of, uh, of, of passages that speak to this question of ultimate purpose. So just hear these and consider what, what they have in common. One is Isaiah 43.7 which describes God's people in this way, quote, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You hear how God identifies their identity and their purpose, whom I created for my glory. Another is Romans eleven thirty six, which says, for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. The third one is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. This puts it in very practical terms. Paul writes this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for what? Do all for the glory of God. Such is our identity that even down to the very actions that we take on a daily basis, everything we are to do, we are to do expressly for the glory of God. Do you hear how they emphasize God's glory as our chief end, as our ultimate purpose? This is the answer to a question of ultimate purpose in these passages. Now, those do not contradict many other passages that speak to God's intention for us in our lives and speak to it in terms of our producing good works. Let me give you some of these. This is another set. And consider what these have in common. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Ephesians 2.20, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Micah 6.8, these last two are from the Old Testament. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Finally, just the final words of the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You hear the way that those speak and sound in a sense a bit different from the first set. The first statement's about the glory of God as our purpose. 
And what we need to understand this morning is that those do not cancel out the many commands to action and good works that we are given in the text of Scripture. But what they do is they explain and undergird all of the others. They explain the intention behind all of the commands to all of the actions that we would do to glorify God. In other words, we can say it this way. God is not telling us to do good works for their own sake. We are doing the things we do in this world, you could say, for his sake, to bring him glory. Remember who we are. We are image bearers of God. And he has made us as his image on this earth to reflect the beauty of who he is. So as we live and act in this world, what's happening is that his goodness and strength and provision and kindness are displayed on earth by his image bearers. So that in everything that we do, as we walk after the Lord and obey him, what is happening and why were we always doing it? We were doing it for the glory of God. It's the reason we were created in the first place. This is something that we often may carry with us in the background of our thinking, and that's helpful because it influences us. But my friends, we are blessed in times like these when God's word takes it and puts it in the foreground of our thinking. What drives the things that we do? Down to eating and drinking. What drives the things that we do is that God might be glorified, put on display in all of his greatness and praised. Now, if we understand that, let's take that and bring it here into John chapter 12. If that's true about everything he's made and about the purpose that he's made us for, then imagine that on this particular day, God is in the room with you, I mean incarnate, in the room with you, sitting at the table. He's going to leave in a couple of hours. And there's orders out to arrest him. But right now, he's right here in the room. Would it be proper to take <coughs> to take the most valuable possession that you own and use it all up simply to honor him right now? See, I think if we put it that way, we can see more clearly why this was the most glorious use imaginable for this stuff in this bottle. Now, another thing I hope you can see in this, though, is that this has nothing to do with questioning the virtue of using our resources to bless the less fortunate. Jesus is not demeaning anything about that when he says, the poor you always have with you, you do not always have me. He's not demeaning the good works of others. In fact, he's not even speaking to that. His point is, the opportunity to show your honor and adoration directly to me in the flesh is a rare thing. And Mary has done well to honor me like this. What she has revealed about her heart is beautiful. So when Christ's work is seen, and not just seen, but it penetrates the heart, it hits home, it meets prepared soil, and it bears fruit, what do we find? We find hearts that honor Christ above earthly authorities, we find hearts that prioritize Christ above worldly considerations. And we find in our text here one more thing as well. And I'm thinking especially of verse 7. As we move past Mary's deeds to Jesus' reply, in verse 7, something significant changes. And this is the place for our third point this morning. But this one is, is unique. It kind of messes up the outline a bit because it's doing something different than the other two. What we're about to see is going to become one of the biggest themes in the rest of John. I mean, one that we'll find come up again and again as we move forward. And yet up to this point in the narrative, we might not have talked about it once. Or at least identified it as a main uh, statement and picture being held up to us. Something is changing here, coming into chapter 12. And I would encourage you to think about it like this. Essentially this morning, when we're talking about what is seen when Jesus' work hits home, what is the work that we're talking about up to this point? What is the work that those around him have seen 
Has it not been work up to this point that is significant displays of Christ's earthly ministry, specifically in terms of the effect of his life on the people around him, the effect of his teaching on those around him, the effect of his miracles and mighty deeds on the people around him. It's that sight of his work that we're talking about hitting home to this people in Bethany. They've seen it. They've learned something true about God. It's changed the way that they think. That's true. But they're reacting to displays of the effect of Jesus' life. Think about God's people in October of 2022. We do talk about and sing about and glory in the things we saw on display in the earthly ministry of Jesus, don't we? I hope we do. We certainly should. But how much do we glory in and sing about his death? Sort of a lot, right? And in Scripture, it's the same way. As we come past the Gospels and we see the New Testament authors commending, directing our attention over and over what we find are explanations of, glorying in, Uh, the effects, the results of the fact that Christ came and he died. Just remember what Ryan read to us earlier in Revelation 5, what's being sung in heaven in that scene. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Not because you raised a man from the dead in your earthly ministry or you restored someone's sight. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God. We glory tremendously in the work of his death. So what about that work? What about the work of his death? What happens when that hits home? This is where we could try to phrase our third point this morning. And it's essentially this, that when Christ's work hits home, specifically when the work of his death hits home, his people's praise find in it their deepest expression. We glory in all of the works of God in Christ, but what we glory in the most is that he came and he died. In a sense, we see that in this text. Now, I'm not saying that the work of his death was in any way consciously in Mary's mind when she did this. She might be acting in part out of a sense that his death is near, and that's very likely. But I don't think we're meant to understand that Mary somehow perceived something about his death that the rest did not. But what we find in Jesus' response is that that is the connection that our Lord tells this people to draw with the great honor that she has shown. Look at verse 7. This is his response. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He's clearly defending Mary, but what is he defending? In fact, what is he saying? This little statement is notoriously difficult. All the way down to the original Greek wording of this, it's confusing to translators, mostly because of some elements in that so that statement that he gives. And so we translate it in different ways. The way that it reads in the ESV can make it sound like he's saying, that she needs to save this liquid for the day of his burial. And it is possible that that's what she's saying. I want to suggest to you, though, that it's very unlikely that that's how we're to take this, for two reasons in particular. Number one, if that's what he was saying, that would require that she has only used up a little of this ointment, and he's telling her to stop and save the rest for a coming day of, of his burial. The problem is simply when you put the accounts together of this event, it's just very unlikely. We do not get that picture at all, that she's poured a little out and is now supposed to save the rest for a future date. Mark, for example, makes clear to us that what she's holding is something of a single-use sort of deal. And she has to break this vial in order to pour out the contents that's inside. And that's what she does. She takes it, she breaks it, and she anoints him with it. She pours it on his head. She pours it on his feet, and maybe more. He speaks of her anointing his body. It also tells us in each of these accounts that the whole house, and remember, this is not 
the house of a poor family. This is the house that is hosting the, uh, the town's celebration. This would be a wealthy benefactor. The whole house is filled with the smell of this. We're not given a picture here of a small, meager anointing from an already small container. The second reason to think this is that the wording in Matthew and Mark, neither of which is worded in a confusing way, they're easy to translate, they give a single and a much clearer picture. Matthew says in Matthew 26, 12, that Jesus said this, in pouring the ointment on my body, listen, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And then Mark 14, 8 says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. We can struggle with what's intended in John, depending on how we translate it, but the wording doesn't have to be translated like we've read it in the ESV. If it's helpful to you, I've put in your bulletin an insert that shows you several different English translations of that verse. You can look at those on your own time, but what you'll notice is that the bottom five of them present the same idea, and that idea comes out much more cleanly in all of them. Holman Christian Bible, Net, King James, NIV, New King James, they all understand him to be saying there in verse 7, she has kept this for the day of my burial. Now, think then of what, she, what he is saying and what he's doing. Because this is not the day of his burial, is it? He's sitting at the table. That's coming a week from now. This is not the day of his burial. So what is Jesus saying? The point here that he's making is that he is drawing for them a symbolic relationship between her action of deep reverential honor and the day of his burial. He's telling them to identify an allusion here to the upcoming day of his burial and the rightness of seeing that with tremendous honor and glory. And he would need to help them with this because burials weren't the only times when anointings with perfume would happen. There's one commentator, Leon Morris, who gives us some very helpful historical context here. Listen to what he writes. He says of Jesus' statement here, It is curious that he should refer to his burial. Anointing was usually a mark of festivity. And its omission was an act of discourtesy toward a guest. Luke 7.46. Remember the sense that we get there is that when a guest comes to your home, if you do not anoint them, you've done something rude. You were expected to celebrate their arrival with an anointing. He continues like this. When people were engaged in solemn activities, such as fasting, they sometimes refrained from anointing as a way of drawing attention to what they were doing, a practice that Jesus discouraged. Anointing was thus associated with revelry rather than with funerals. A remark about a burial is not at all what we would have expected. I think that that's helpful to understand the context here of his statement. Because you can tell what's happening is her actions are being perceived, in essence, as a really overdone gesture of hospitality and that kind of honoring. They get that he, she's honoring Jesus. The question is, for what purpose? In what context? But in a culture that was accustomed to spending lavishly on funerals, Jesus is saying, you need to consider this as a gesture that draws your mind to my upcoming burial. After all, and this, is, and this is what he says next, you will not always have me with you. And by him essentially calling this the day of his burial, we see him using this moment as a step. He's going to take many more of these. As a step in preparing them all for the upcoming events of this next week. And not just to know that it's coming, but to understand that when that day comes, what has just happened is a thing of deepest honor and glory. It is not as it looks. And I would have us close this morning by dwelling on, for just another minute or so, that, this third and final point that we've taken here. The fact that our Lord draws a line between the greatest display of honor and glory that he has yet received and the way that his work is accomplished on earth through the cross. Consider what it means about the works that we've seen our Lord accomplish so far. He's done a great many good and wonderful things, hasn't he? 
And in doing each of them, he has brought glory to God in the things that he's done. The question is, were those ends in themselves? Or were they always ultimately pointing to something more? To greater needs than the ones that he relieved. To greater rescue than the ones that he has given. We can think of it like this. Thinking of those other deeds that Christ has done in his life for people. What will any of it matter if he does not go to the cross? It's in this very chapter that we find the words of verses 27 and 28. might look down there. Jesus says there, and he's begun now explicitly talking about death and about his death. And he says in verse 27, chapter 12, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify. Father, glorify your name. This is what he has in mind as he thinks of what's coming and begins to prepare them. Quite truly, our Lord has glorified the name of his Father at all points in his time on earth. But my friends, all manifestations of God's glory are not equal. And none of them will compare to the glory that God receives when the spotless, when the spotless Lamb of God lays down his life for his friends. Our attention upon Mary's action this morning, when it's seen in the context that it is in, it lends itself that way for us. It makes me think of of hypothetical, lesser uh, sorts of experiences we could have in our own lives. If someone has done a lot of good for me and for the people that I love, I'm going to respect that person and deeply appreciate them. But what if one day something happens and that person saves my life at the cost of his own? That's going to be very different. And for the rest of my life, for the rest of my life, I don't just respect and appreciate that person. I find myself very much wanting to tell others about who this person was and what he did. I find myself wanting to live in such a way and actually thinking about my life with that kind of a question. Would he be proud of what I've done with this life that he has protected? Mary has been given her brother back from death, and she cannot do enough to honor Jesus in that day. But my friends, what have we received by his death? The infinite guilt of our sin, rightly attributed to us, rightly guilty, that guilt which we could never hope to pay at the cross for those who have come to him for life, it has been atoned for and paid in full. And there's a tremendous opportunity for us this morning to grow in the way that we meditate upon our Lord, to grow in the way that we pray to him, in the ways that we feel gratitude. If you're anything like me, you know that we can often get stuck. I can get stuck in the rut of thinking in the course of daily, weekly life that thanks Jesus for uh, what he has done for me that day. Thanks Jesus for the health that I have had this week or for this or that temporal blessing that he has given. And what we remember this morning is that those gifts are great displays of kindness on on the Lord's part. And they are to be praised. He is to be praised for them. And yet... What would any of them be worth to us if not for the gift of his death in my place? The innocent for the guilty to reconcile us to God. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ in his infinite mercy has done. And it required nothing less than the horrors of the cross. This is what will make him for all eternity worthy of all praise. 
as the God-man Jesus Christ. And as we continue to walk through John's gospel now, then we won't be surprised to find him speaking of his shameful, cruel, wicked crucifixion as the moment of his greatest triumph and glory. And this is indeed what we'll see as we go forward. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you now as a body of Christ, as your people, and we are again this week thankful and humbled at what you have truly done in sending your Son. There are so many gifts that you pour out upon us through him every day in our lives. Father, forgive us for the ways and the many times that we overlook, that we take for granted, that we fail to thank you and give you praise for those gifts. But, oh Lord, we find so much more than that in these reflections this morning. We find that the very purpose of our lives is forfeit, if not for the cross of Jesus Christ. And for that, we thank you this morning. Father, help us to respond to his gift of his death, not by trying to add works to it or to pay him back for it, but instead to live lives of deep and abiding gratitude and thankfulness. Help us to honor him by leaning heavily on the cross, by clinging to it for life, by saying in word and deed that we are truly worthy of all of your judgment in hell. But what we have in the forgiveness that's found in your son is an act of sheer grace and mercy, and it is sufficient. Lord, help us to to demonstrate that in our minds, in our hearts, in in our words. As we represent ourselves not as better people or perfect people, but as a people who have been shown great mercy and whose pardon required nothing less than the death of the innocent, spotless Lamb of God. We thank you again this morning for him, and we pray in his name. Amen.